Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's time for the show that brings the magic right to your speakers. Ears up! Hey, welcome everybody. Ears up podcast. Uh, today's going to be a big show, man. I'm ready. Uh, I'm ready for it. I'm excited for it. It's uh, how Disney influenced the space race, and it's me reading a lot of my own words, um, which is uncomfortable for anybody. But uh, I think um, I think it's going to be fun. A lot of Ward Kimball history in there too, and uh, you know, science. Nice. Yeah, so it should be good for everybody. Science. I love this episode already because you had to do all the work. I had to do all the work, <laughs> dude. You Ugh. haven't done a show in probably two years. Like no, I this. did one recently. Yeah, not like this, but I did do one recently or something like that. Uh, you do all of the interviews, but that's like, true, yeah. as far as like researching a topic and doing the thing. Yeah, you gave no, that up a long time ago. I did one ago. last year. You guys, are, you guys are crazy. I did one last year. The last one I remember was like... Toy Story Land, or not Toy Story Land? Uh, the what's the kid land called? The kid land? Yeah, the like little tiny kid land in Disneyland. Um, Fantasyland. Toontown. Toontown. Oh, Toontown. Yeah, that's the last one I remember. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't know, man. I think I did another one. Mm. All right. Well, whatever. Maybe I didn't. I'm looking back. I'm looking back. You're at actually thing, like, looking no, now. Of course I am. Well, but I mean, you do research on the ones that we do all together. Yeah. Sure. Sure. And then I do. you also started your P podcast. So my P podcast. Yeah, yeah your P E E. Yeah. Well, anyway, look, this show is definitely going to uh, to make up for all of the shows that I've missed. It's it, look, it's a 15 font, one and a half space, but it's 25 pages. Wow, Holy Terrence. Crap. Jeez. But it's important information, and I look, it'll be good. good. I, got, I got some audio elements to it. I got stuff to play. So uh, this will be a fun show. I'm, I'm excited about it. Dang. But, uh, before we do all that, find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, feedback. If you have feedback on the show, that goes to Taryn at EarsUp-Podcast.com. Show suggestions go to Terrence at EarsUp-Podcast.com. You can say hi. Hi. To Bev, anything else, me, Jason, ears up, hyphenpodcast.com. Uh, we have a couple updates for you. There's a new in-depth that just released today. It's hot off the uh, podcast editing software app condenser thing. Uh, Jeremy <laughs> and I recorded it yesterday. And then, in fact, there's some breaking news in the middle of it that I had to record a segment for to put it in because we were talking about uh, Disneyland is opening in late April, and we didn't know. And then today it was announced they're opening April 30th. So that's Sweet. in there. Yeah, it's it's cool, man. But we we have some good news. It was a it was a fun show. So go check that out. Uh, the guys over at the, the uh, Supreme Resort they have a message for you. It's five minutes long. So go over to our YouTube page <laughs> and suffer through all that. I'm just kidding. Uh, but basically, 
They did a show. It's like a March Madness bracket style show, but instead of basketball, it's with park snacks. So which park snack is the ultimate in the, you know, it's called the Snackdown Smackdown. And I was oh. the judge for that. <gasps> so that was That's fun. Cool. Yeah, it was a good time, actually. Was, I think it's a really cute idea. Uh, so that episode, I think, should release on Saturday if they're on schedule for editing it, which I don't blame them if they're not because that show takes a long time to edit. So uh, anyway, uh, they should have posted their snack bracket already uh so you know if you follow them on on instagram or whatever uh you can fill that out and if you fill that out and i guess submit it or i I don't know i'm sure the video or the the video on our youtube page will tell you um if you submit it and you get all the brackets correct you win a cool prize a cameo video from steve gutenberg Wow. That's a Dan thing. What? Dan is like obsessed with buying cameos from Steve Gutenberg. So, um, like he's done it before? Multiple times. What? Yeah. It's a thing, man. Is he trying to become like friends with him through through this process? I don't know. <laughs> Cuz I wonder if that happens. I feel like there's things that you could spend your money on <laughs> <laughs> that are better. Like leggings? <sighs> like any oh. Okay. Touche. Yeah. Uh, why did you buy $250 leggings? No, I bought five pair of leggings, though, in the last week. <laughs> All right. Well, that's good, man. Hey, everybody needs leggings. Anyway, so check that out. It's a fun, it was, it's a fun show old. to do. It, and it will fill this bracket out because it really will test your mental snackitude, man. It was very hard to do this show. It was very, very hard. So I'm sorry. I was um, doing something else. What, where do I find the bracket? Uh, on their social media somewhere. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I'm not entirely sure, to be honest with you. Um, and then also, there's a new blog post on our website about uh, the different faces in Pirates of the Caribbean. Yes. So everybody knows, or everybody's heard, or maybe nobody's heard, I don't know, um, that they've had to reuse some of the faces within Pirates of the Caribbean to fill out the citizens of Puerto Dorado. Uh, we've tracked all those faces down. Oh. So this is part <laughs> one. So, okay. like for example, the uh, the guy in the and I and maybe I've said it on this show before. I can't remember because I've repeated it like three different times on four different podcasts. I can't. <laughs> I don't know anymore. So whatever. Okay. But like the banjo guy is the same face as like one of the guys waiting in line to get dunked on the in the um, the well scene. What? And then he's okay. he's somewhere. He's I think huh. he's in the in the jail in the last scene too. It's it's stuff like Whoa. that. And there's pictures uh, all over the place. So, um, and they're all from Dave Land Web, Dave Webland, whatever. He He's was kind great. enough to, uh, He's cool. he was kind enough to let us post all the pictures. So, oh, that's yeah. nice. Yeah. So it was really cool. So anyway, check that out. If you're into it. that too, it's a lot of fun. Cool. Uh, part two will come, I don't know, at some point. And then speaking of Disneyland opening, if you want to get going on your Disneyland trip, go to Contiers.com. And I say that, I'll walk that back just a bit. There's no information yet <laughs> on how to book. But gotcha. but some of the hotels are going to be opening. So get in touch with concierge if you want to go. Um, there's a few caveats on like if you, just because you have a park reservation and you're staying on site doesn't guarantee you you're able to get in because they're only opening at 15 percent. Right. Right. So it's sort of a gamble. But that's a mess. Yeah. But that's if you want to if you want to yeah. if you want to take your, ch- your, your chance. I kind of do. Then. um you go have fun doing that. <laughs> anyway, go to concierge.com. They will keep you in the loop. Sign up for their newsletters or follow them on social or do whatever. Just reach out and contact them. Even if you're not going to go and you're not going to Disney World, send them an email, send them a message, slide into their DMs, 
and thank them very much for supporting the show and let them know that once everything opens back up and you feel comfortable going to whichever park, that you will definitely use them just to even buy your park tickets. Let's say you're not even staying on site or you have a deal with a hotel or something else or whatever. They sell park tickets at whatever you're going to pay at the gate or from Disneyland themselves. So it's no upcharge and you get so much more um, you know, service with it. So actually, check them out. I actually feel a little bad because like right before this show started, I <laughs> I sent them a or I, I commented on their their Instagram because I was I was like, is there any information on how to get tickets or anything? Yeah, but no. apparently no. There's none. There's none yet. I know today I don't they were on don't hold under- with the parks trying to figure out what's going on. I don't understand hmm. how you can have a reservation. I don't like, understand why either. Why wouldn't they only offer the reservations to people who like you have a reservation, you're allowed. But if you don't have a reservation, they well, may. my guess like, is right? there is like it's they're reserving that language for people who lie, like people who don't live in California, but get a reservation and then they get there and they're like, "But I have a reservation." It's like, "Well, but show me your your PG&E bill." I mean, I I think what they're doing know. also oh, damn, is they have to do all that. Well, your ID, you have or to, something like that. You have to prove that you live in California. Like yeah. when I got my California annual pass, you had to show a bill. Nice. Yeah, it's um, I think maybe what they're doing is they just oversell a little bit to account for the people who stay for half a day, you know, in the park. I I don't know. I don't know how that works. And it sounds like they don't really know either yet. So we'll figure all that out later. Taryn, do we have any feedback? We do. Hello, Ears Up crew. Hi, Bev. Hi. I just finished. I like it when people say hi. (laughs) It is nice. I just finished watching your episode with pianist Tom Amin on YouTube, and I loved it. I grew up with a father who, as a young child of Greek immigrant parents, taught himself to play his grandfather's bazooki nah. at a very young age. Later on, the bazooki. Later on, while at his first job as a teacher of the blind, he taught himself how to play the piano when he realized how well the kids reacted to music. But he never learned to read music, he just played it all by ear. Which is kind of amazing when you remember that there was no YouTube to get lessons from back then. Growing up, I remember my dad always being at the piano, just tinkering around at many family events and countless holidays to play songs, mostly from Greece, as the family gathered around to sing. Unfortunately for my dad, none of us children picked up any musical instrument of any kind, but always gathered around whenever we heard dad tinkering on the piano. My three boys loved it as well, and he would play for them from the day that they were born. Unfortunately, my dad passed away when they were young, and he never got to see the three of them end up in high school marching band. Thank you for bringing me back to those wonderful memories, and I loved your interview with Tom Amin. It was amazing. I love you guys. Thank, uh, keep up the great work. Us fans really do appreciate it. And hi, Jeremy. Thanks, Mercina, which I think is a very cool name. Yeah. Um, you guys want to hear what the bazooki sounds like? Yes. It's, yes. it's like a loot. Here. Oh, it's very Greek. <laughs> it's the most Greek. And what we have here is actually. A oh, I feel like that's instrument. the most Greek. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Uh, it's a loot. It's a giant loot, essentially. Anyway, classic. That with the clarinet. Yeah, man. I don't know how to do clarinet sound, so it just sounds no, like a, sure a a female moose. <laughs> Whatever. No, you sure don't. 
Sorry, bro. Uh, you can support us going over to Etsy.com slash shop slash covers, buy some shirts, buy some masks, do all that kind of stuff. Patreon.com slash years up is the best way to support the show that enables us to do some upgrades. Actually was able to buy four new cables. Uh, for this stupid audio setup that I have, that there's always a thing. There's always a thing. So I got to, oh, whatever. It's fine. You know all the things. Before we get to my show, let's hear from our close personal friend. Nobody, because I don't have it yet, because oh, I'm stupid. There it is right there. All right. My close personal friend, Mr. Sean O'Sullivan. <laughs> that is not it. Let's try again. Hello, it's Sean O'Sullivan, the brewmaster and co-founder of the 21st Amendment Brewery, and we are proud to announce a fresh addition into our Hell or High series of beers with Hell or High Pomegranate. Our California Bay Area brewery has done it again, creating a crisp and refreshing wheat beer that pairs well with the season. Heller High Pomegranate is made with real fruit and is sweet with a slightly tart finish. It's a perfect beer to enjoy during this time of year and can brighten any rainy or wintry day. Behind all that soft and elegant pomegranate flavor and aroma is a wonderful wheat beer with its biscuity, light bready notes, and at a mere 4.9% alcohol, is quite enjoyable. Heller High Pomegranate is available across the country where 21st Amendment beer is sold on draft and in cans. That's right, cans. There you go. Thank you, Sean. Uh, Jeremy does the live read of that on the last year's uh, in-depth. I heard it. He did a good job. It's pretty good, right? He did all right. All right. Are you guys ready to hear about uh, Walt Disney and the space race and all that kind of fun stuff? Yes. I'm a little nervous because I don't feel like I know anything about the space race. Well, you're about to find out. Why are you nervous? It's not like you're going to get tested halfway through. Filled out this this survey beforehand, and then we're going to (laughs) compare and contrast. But when I don't know about something, and then I... Somebody starts talking about it, I start thinking about what groceries I need. Yeah, but you do that anyways. Uh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> start thinking about bleaching your hair again. No, that was just for, for pre-show content. Oh, okay, good. All right. <clears throat> and it was fascinating. Thanks. Sure. I'm sure it was. All right, here we go. Let me take a, a drink of something <laughs> cold. I think he's nervous. I'm only nervous because uh, I, I don't feel like my thoughts are organized well enough, but we'll see. Ward Kimball, one of Disney's legendary nine old men, highly skilled trombonist, founding member of the Firehouse 5 Plus 2, and also the man who helped kickstart the space race, was hired in 1934 as an in-betweener, which is a guy who draws the frames of an animation to give it movement. The primary animator handles the main character movement, so this is not really a high-up position, clearly. Ward was one of the first artists to bring in a portfolio to his interview, which nobody really was doing back then. As Ward worked his way up the animation ladder, working on Mickey Mouse, Jiminy Cricket, the Cheshire Cat, Mad Hatter, etc., Walt came to regard Ward as a brilliant animator and even called him a genius. So when it came to find somebody he could count on, Ward was right up there. As his plans for Disneyland moved forward, Walt was splitting his attention between the park and his new TV show that he created to specifically promote the park, called Walt Disney's Disneyland. His idea was to fill each episode with attractions and relevant content from each of the lands within Disneyland. Adventureland, Fantasyland, Frontierland, and Tomorrowland. Sometimes the audience would see teasers for what was coming in the parks, and other times they would get sort of a slice of life. A bit of content showing what life was like within that time period of whichever land was the focus. For example, during the Adventureland segments you might see Davy Crockett having one of his adventures, or... If Fantasyland was the focus that week, you would see cartoons that have some relation to the rides contained within. Sometimes the audience would get a behind-the-scenes view of how a particular thing was made, 
either cartoons or voiceovers. Anyway, you get the idea. The show produced 21 episodes leading up to the opening of Disneyland. Show 21 was called a pre-opening show, and it aired just days before the actual opening of the park. So that leaves us with 20 episodes left to focus on the different lands. Naturally, you assume that there would be five shows for each of the four lands, right? Well, you'd be wrong. Out of these 20 shows, only one starred anything related to Tomorrowland. And it was show number 20. Yes, Tomorrowland was pushed aside, mainly because I think nobody really knew what to do with it, right? Shoving a Davy Crockett short on TV is easy. How are you going to showcase technology in a park that hasn't been built yet, that ha- if the technology hasn't even been vented for the park to go into? <laughs> well, you leave it alone and you figure it out later, it seems. Walt knew he had this deadline for a Tomorrowland episode coming up, but was entirely too busy to do anything about it, so he approached Ward Kimball about writing and producing the Tomorrowland segment for the Disneyland TV show. There's no date for this conversation, but I'm betting it's shortly after Ward won the Academy Award for Best Animated Short on March 25th, 1954. I mean, if you have to get something moving on a short time frame, who better to go to than a freshly minted Academy Award winner? True. Now, how Ward got tapped for the Tomorrowland show seemed to be his interest in weird stuff, quote unquote. It was Ward who got Walt into miniature trains, like the ones we've all seen photos of him riding. Ward was also a big UFO buff. He had stacks of books and magazines around the studio, and apparently Ward had gotten out about that. Ward, as it just so happens, was reading a lot about space and space travel in the now defunct Collier's magazines. So Ward hands a couple of these space articles to Walt to gauge his interest in maybe doing a show about what space travel could look like, and maybe that could represent their Tomorrowland segment. Doing some assuming here, I think, uh, internet sleuthing, I think the article Ward handed to Walt was called Man Will Conquer Space Soon. It came out right about this same time in early 1954. It was written by Werner Von Braun and covered heady stuff like building an unmanned satellite, a manned space shuttle, a space station, an outpost on the moon, and even, you guessed it, landing and living on Mars. Now, Von Braun was a German aerospace engineer, and since the early 1920s, was working on developing the technology for a rocket. After World War II, Von Braun came to the U.S. via Operation Paperclip and began helping the U.S. government in our rocket programs. Throughout his time in the U.S., he and other (laughs) ex-Nazis... Every time I see see that word, I feel like I have to emphasize it, because it's like... Anyway, I get to it later. Uh, He and other ex-Nazis wrote extensively for Collier's about their thoughts on manned space travel, how humans could survive in space, and how all that technology would actually work. That's a very simplified version of what he was, but that's where we're going to stay for now. What else he was, was focused on getting his ideas out into the world in any way he could. So writing for Collier's was Von Braun's way of trying to get the public excited about space, for he knew that if the public wanted something, their governments would eventually fall in line, right? I mean, (laughs) yeah, right. Good. uh, That's really good. It took him a few days, but Walt came back to Ward after Ward gave him the Collier's issues and gave Ward the go-ahead for his project. He also mentioned to Ward that they should get Von Braun involved. Quote, this is the way to go. This is not science fiction. This is science factual. We know these things. So let's get Von Braun and the others out here. Now, at the time, the public fascination with space was on the more fiction side. After the war, news of the German rockets reached the American public and sort of ignited the imagination of the world. What could we really do with this technology besides kill people? (laughs) 
This led to the obsession with UFOs, aliens, and humans going to Mars that we think of when we think of movies from the 1950s. And you look back at some of the films that were released at that time, The Thing from 1951, Invaders from Mars, 1953, and War of the Worlds, also from 1953. The sensationalism of science at this time was an uphill battle for Walt. He knew that he needed to approach the public with an entertaining yet factual program if he was going to get anybody to care about his Tomorrowland, right? And Walt was all about teaching the public, informing people, not just having a good time, but if you can have a good time and learn something from it, then that's just a win-win for everybody. So he gave Ward the go-ahead, and Ward puts together a team to drum up some ideas for the Tomorrowland show. Working on the project was Ward, of course, a man called Ken O'Connor, someone else called Charles Shows, who actually ran sort of a space-themed program on KTLA at the time, and Bill Bosch. And these four men poured over the Collier's articles, and on April 17, 1954, presented their idea to Walt. Now, remember, Disneyland opened in 1955, and they had, what I can figure out, nothing that they could put on screen to show off what Tomorrowland would even represent. Just nothing. They had nothing. They had to resort to literally creating a whole plan for the feel of Tomorrowland a year before park opening. Luckily, there was a transcript made of this meeting, so we do have some insight as to how important this was to everyone in the room. Getting the science and the presentation right so that everyone at any level could understand that's what Walt wanted most of all. And so I do have some audio. It's a recreation um, because there, there, there was a transcript, but it's obviously not a, a recording. So here's a, here's a little radio play for you guys. Well, whoa, there are two sides to go for this. Comedy interest and, and factual interest. Both of them are, are vital to keep the show becoming dry. Uh, you need a good balance to keep it from becoming too dry and corny. Uh, now, now, we don't want to compete with Sid Caesar or do that type of thing. Uh, we want to do something new on our show. We're, we're trying to show a man's dreams of the future and what he has learned from the past. Uh, the history might be a good way to work in your laughs. Uh, people laugh at intentions of the past, such as the guy trying to fly with the feathers, because, well, with the inventions and the progress of science today, people feel superior. Man's always trying to invent something so that he doesn't have to work so hard. He's a human animal. I think that is your basis. He's constantly trying to simplify things. The kids really accept this stuff on space. They really believe it. To make this information interesting to the whole family, you have to have the comedy touch in there for the younger kids. The facts are fascinating, but if you lighten it up with cartoons or something, it would make a complete family deal. Well, well, we could show them that the man has been constantly seeking a way to get up in the air. Uh, we should show uh, what he might find when he when he did get there. Uh, he's wanted to fly all through history. Now, now he wants to get out to Mars to see what all these people look like. Well, we could do a little cartoon thing on Mars and its inhabitants. It would be a great little cartoon. We, we should be careful and keep our serious stuff separate. Uh, we have to watch it so the material doesn't get too corny. Uh, I think this parallel is the true life adventures facts and opening up this world to the people so they were very uh, uh very very cognizant very aware of how to present this information because science is boring it is boring it's dry and it sucks science sucks even though this is how you're hearing me now <laughs> is through science the, the, if i sat and like broke down this uh, soundboard it would just it would it, fry any synapses in your mind unless you're really interested in that but you're you're also you're not just educating you're, you're entertaining and that's yes. what disney does best and and especially like like walt mentioned 
and with his true life adventures, you know, which was going out into the, the, the plains and where all of these wild animals are and bringing the science of those animals to you in a fun yet factual way. Yeah. In this meeting, Walt also gave his first description of his moon ride attraction at Disneyland. Quote, we want to build this thing in the park. In the spaceship, you have a viewing room above and below. When we take off, we want to give the effect of really taking off. You get the noise, the sound effects, and you see the gases there. Pretty soon, you see the Earth pulling away. We really want the people to get the feeling of a trip to the moon. So this meeting sort of was the catalyst for, for how Tomorrowland would come together. Okay. So not only for the, for the TV show, but Walt is, is, of course, at this point, just thinking about the park also, right? He's, like, focused on that, too. So he's coming up with the, with the trip to the moon ride from this. Yeah. So that's pretty cool, too. Hmm. Uh, after the meeting, an event occurred that nobody in the history of working with Walt Disney could remember happening before or since. Bill Bosch recalls, quote, I remember when we finished the meeting, Walt was enthusiastic about it. He walked out of the story room, stopped at the desk, and ripped off a blank sheet of notepaper. He handed it to Kimball and said, quote, write your own ticket. I remember Harry Title was standing there when Walt said that, and his eyes just about <laughs> dropped out of his head. Walt never said anything like that. So Walt was so behind Ward with this show, he entrusted him to just do whatever it takes, wow. spend whatever you got to spend, but make it good. The working title of the show was called Rockets and Space. Ward reached out to many scientists for their help and input on what was to only be a segment for a TV show, right? It wasn't going to be the entire thing. It was just going to be this segment for it. But not everyone was inclined to help. One such academic applied with a jaded letter, quote, I'm a retired old scientist having found through 30 years of strenuous research the stuff that most people of our days can very well get along without. <laughs> I say this with the knowledge that insofar as today's scientists are concerned, the fruits of my labor could very well lay dormant for another century. However, it is possible that I may be wrong. I must say that your firm seems always to have been foremost in expounding new views, and perhaps in this case, Mr. Walt Disney will outdistance our ordinary scientists and possibly shorten the aforementioned century. It seems to be the general feeling of academics at this time. They were disappointed that the U.S. was not interested in pushing boundaries, and they sort of just felt useless. I mean, you're researching all these topics for whatever field, but it, nobody's listening to you. Are you are you actually doing anything? It's like Schrodinger scientist. Like, are you really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hmm. Uh, but Kimball and his team pressed on. First, they found a man called Willie Lay, who then turned Walt and Ward onto Werner von Braun. Lay was the facts guy, and Werner was the design guy. Werner and Walt got along famously. Walt loved just sitting and talking about the future of space travel with Werner, who was only too happy to tell Walt what the U.S. was working on in that department, because Werner was working with the U.S. at that time. Walt would then walk around the studio relaying all the information he had just learned to anybody that would listen. Imagine Walt Disney comes up to your desk and starts jabbering about rockets. It's just, <laughs> just crazy stuff, man. That is sort of his M.O., though. Like, yeah. he he learns about something, and you can, I mean, not that I knew the guy, but he seems like that kind of guy who, like, he learns something and then wants to talk about it with everybody that he knows and only that topic. <laughs> right. At the start of the 1950s, Werner was working on the U.S. missile program, but what he really wanted to do was direct. No, what he really wanted <laughs> to do was to get the U.S. to spin up a space program. He was getting no joy from the government with regards to active pursuit of landing on the moon, so he wanted to get the public on board first. 
Von Braun was involved with many scripts in the 1950s. Movie studios and writers would send him their work to have him weigh in. And as a result, much of what we see in movies from this point on, or even into the 80s or 90s, is kind of a direct result of Von Braun's influence and his forward thinking. Sending men to a space station, orbiting the moon, and then flying off to Mars kind of a thing. I mean, that's the exact thing he wrote about. He also had a timeline that all this stuff should happen within the next generation. He wanted to see his dreams come true, and he thought that the U.S. could actually do it. Yes, oddly enough, the German scientist was rigid and focused on a goal. I don't know. Uh, reaching out to his pal, who was also imported from Germany, Willie Ley, who had the connections at Collier's to set up a meeting. Eventually, Werner's wild ideas were greenlit into print, and his stories were written up in Collier's, and his plans to use the American public to force the government to fire people into space took hold. I know that's a lot of, like, uh, you know, sort of going around and around, but if that makes sense. Werner really sourced out how to get in touch with anybody who would let him print his ideas. And then this is sort of what happened. It, it, it worked, and then Ward got a hold of these. And I found some of these articles online, and reading some of these stories, you could really see how these simple tales had a ripple effect through not only pop culture in the 50s, but every cartoon you've ever watched in the 80s that had anything remotely to do with space. I mean, picture it. Space, 1967. The cost, $4 billion. A giant space station orbits the Earth, 250 feet in diameter, powered by solar panels that helped boil the mercury to power the turbine, which spun to provide artificial gravity. A crew of 80 lives in relative comfort. It's here that they start construction on three spaceships, each the size of the Statue of Liberty and carrying a crew of 50, are launched into space, hurling towards the moon. Once in orbit... One spaceship would be dismantled and used as materials for construction of a moon base, while the other two ships would be reused. Now, this is not just a pipe dream. This is the bong load of pipe dreams. <laughs> not, not to discount the work that Werner and his colleagues did, because from all accounts, these ideas were science-based proposals that were meant to be taken very seriously. Along with these articles and later the book series that expanded on the theories proposed for Collier's, Werner included drawings, schematics, and precise mathematical calculations detailing out just how to accomplish these lofty goals. But this was literally one of the things he wrote about in Collier's magazine, is recycling these spaceships to build bases on the moon to then that will be our jumping off point to Mars. And he... Four billion dollars in nineteen sixty seven. I don't even know what that is now. Jeez. But this is what one hundred billion dollars. Yeah. Right. And that's fifteen years bef like fifteen years in the future at uh, on that timeline, right? You talk about like nineteen fifty, nineteen fifty four. I mean, can you imagine that now? It's just it's insane. It's sort of what Elon Musk is trying to do, but not on this level. Like boiling mercury to spin the thing. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> that but sounds healthy. Yeah, <laughs> you, yeah you, you you can do it, I guess. I mean, he had the math to, so, to show you how it would work. But anyway, um, as the ideas came in for the TV show, Ward's team needed room to plan this space show out. He took over two rooms at the studio and filled them with concept art for just one 50-minute Tomorrowland show. Walt loved the ideas so much that he decided to turn this one show into three shows. The first one would be called <laughs> Man in Space. I'm sorry, but this is this is exactly that right there is how we know that Walt would be totally fine with everything that goes on in the parks. He'd be fine with all of these like 
movie revamps because he's like, mm. hey, it's kind of working. Let's make it really work with three shows now <laughs> instead of just yeah. one. Didn't I mean, it start as a segment? Like, yeah. I mean, I this guy was fine. He's with... all about that saturation. He's exactly. Fine. Yeah, he's probably fine. <laughs> now, as you can imagine, producing a TV show about space travel meant distilling a lot of these concepts like weightlessness, even just how rockets work to a level that would keep the attention spans of the general public. After all, these were advertisements for Disneyland at their core, but they were also supposed to actually keep people tuned in. So Walt had to do his best Mr. Rogers, ignore the mixed timeline there, and make sure that this stuff was easy to understand. He was aware that the content had to be funny but correct. Science factual, as he called it. Ward and the animators would ask these scientists questions about how man would survive in space, how gravity would work, what would happen if XYZ happened, etc. And then as the answers came, the men thought of funny situations to present these problems. But not everyone was on board. The thought of space travel was stuck in the realm of the impossible. For so many people, it was considered a fantasy, nothing more than just subject matter for B-movies and comic books. Even the folks working on the models for the Tomorrowland show had their doubts. According to Ward, he was expecting the model rocket that was to be used on the show to be painted and ready to shoot on a strict timeline. So Ward heads down to the paint department and checks in, goes, where's the rocket? We're going to be shooting tomorrow. The painter replies, quote, well, you don't really think they're going to put a man into space. End quote, which is a very weird interaction relayed by Ward by an interview with Ward Himself, so it's not like a third-hand accounting. This is really this communication actually happened. Why are you late with the rocket? Well, you don't really think people are actually gonna not no not not in this rocket. This is a tiny rocket. What are you talking about? <laughs> Paint the stupid thing. Yeah. And uh, anyway, the follow-up with that is uh, everyone was ready on time. Well, that's good. Paint fumes are a thing. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, eventually, Ward gets the job done, and on March 9th, nineteen fifty-five, almost a year after pitching the idea to Walt, Man in Space debuted. It was forty-eight minutes long and took two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to make. The first ever look into the feel and concept of Tomorrowland, Man in Space, was viewed by an estimated forty-two million people, as opposed to the about four million subscribers to Colliers at the time. Wow. Narrated by Dick Tuffield, who went on to voice the robot in Lost in Space, it was nominated for Academy Award for Best Documentary Short. And it's it's online. You guys can go can go look at it. And I'll play a little bit of it uh, here. But it's 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 a cute it's a cute show. Uh, the show does a good job going through the history of man's chase for a rocket, from its humble beginnings in China with the invention of gunpowder to Jules Verne igniting the dreams of the world with his book From the Earth to the Moon. In that book, he launched men to the moon, not on a rocket, but inside a giant artillery shell inserted into a large cannon. Now, if any film buffs out there think that sounds familiar, it's because in 1902, the first space travel movie was made. And it was also, by the way, the first film to use special effects. A trip to the moon saw men crammed into our artillery shell and shot at the moon, only to end up landing right in the moon's eye. It's cute. You should go look it up. A Trip to the Moon. It's very, very short. It's it's cute. But yeah, the first space travel movie, this first movie to use special effects. Check it out. That's cool. <coughs> I just inhaled my saliva. <coughs> oh, dear. Yeah, that's cool. That feels good, man. <laughs> what are you, Al? This is where Alice gets it from. She chokes on her yeah, air every day. Because we're both drooling idiots and we just <coughs> <coughs> oh, my God. breathe shallowly. Uh <coughs> Excuse me. I'll probably leave that in. <laughs> <coughs> Stupid. <laughs> uh, 
My voice doesn't sound right. The timbre of my voice is now altered. <clears throat> Do you need water? No, I literally have a can of beer and a can of water right here. Okay. Thank you. Well, I don't know if they're full. Our hero... <clears throat> See? <laughs> That's the worst, too. It really is, man. I'm sorry. (laughs) All right. Our hero of the film is a little cartoon man designed by Ward called Homo sapien extraterrestrialis. The name was Walt's idea. (laughs) Which is like literally like spaceman, right? (laughs) Our little spaceman would experience everything a real human would experience being shot into space, but in a much funnier way. This was the humor that something as dry as theoretical space travel needed. So I do have a little bit of that um, to play for you. Here it is right here. We are all familiar with centrifugal force. We duplicate this force in the laboratory by using human centrifuges. These machines artificially create on man the crushing pressure he will have to endure in a rocket takeoff from Earth. His body weight increases until he blacks out and finally loses consciousness. From tests like these, we have learned that man will have to assume a reclining position when his rocket takes off into space. In this attitude, the stresses will be more evenly distributed along his body. He will then be able to tolerate pressures of up to nine times his weight or more as it occurs in a rising rocket. When the rocket engine finally stops, Man will face his next big problem, weightlessness. Without support, he will be floating freely, drifting, tumbling, and twisting helplessly. In space, a man, a feather, a bubble, or a piece of iron will have the same weight, or rather, no weight at all. However, man is designed to live with gravity. Anyway, you get the idea. Go check it out. Disneyland Man in Space. It's it's That's cute. Cool. Uh, you know, it, it is science-y, but it is, it's a little dry, but it's still humor enough. Anyway, it works pretty well. Uh, that voice was Werner Von Braun. Anyway. Oh, okay. That was narrating. Then, so... That sounds interesting. Yeah, it is. So, uh, so after the, the theoretical space travel, all that kind of stuff... Uh, the, the the movie progresses a little bit more. Uh, the German rocket program was introduced, and the narration conveniently skips over the part where the rockets were built to kill us rather than take <laughs> men into space, but, you know, whatever. Uh, apparently, the Germans had 75 of their infamous V-2 rockets already built when the war ended, and uh, the U.S. brought them over to the States to study them, which I'd never heard before and found that rather mm. interesting. I knew that you know, via Operation Paperclip, we got all the, we got all the scientists. But I didn't know that we also got working rockets so wow. we could break them down for our space program or our, our rocket program. I didn't think about those types of things. Like if you win a war, like that. Who gets the spoils? That you like get things. Yeah, you get the. Exactly. Like, I was just oh, like, oh, pe- people stop dying. Cool. Like <laughs> I had never thought about like uh, like tangible things that you might obtain. Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Crazy. Uh, then uh, after that, Willie Lay comes on and his German accent kicks in, and I, I sort of got really uncomfortable. I mean, I can't imagine what vets from World War II thought when they saw this man who, not 10 years ago, was researching ways to kill them with the same technology he was now showing to Walt Disney. And in fact, these rockets were used in the London Blitz. Though, in Lay's case, he, he did flee Germany in the grasp of the Nazis and came to the U.S. in 1935, but, you know, whatever. Uh, later in the program, they had on Heinz Haber. Now, Heinz was not only a scientist, but a pilot in the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe. He volunteered for deployment in World War II and was active in the invasion of Poland and the Eastern Front. 
He was eventually shot down and went on to do some pretty awful stuff in the name of science. I'm not going to go into what those were here. I'm going to do a separate Pyramid Eye Ear show uh, on on this, actually, you know, the, the Nazis involved in, in this show or in the Tomorrowland show. Um, but you can figure out that this man was not a, a nice man. He was not a good person. Some labeled him an opportunist, lending his services to any country that would have him, which is a very generous way to think about it. But to see this man standing in front of Ward Kimball talking about how man will survive in space, having just read about how he was able to study the effects of space on the human body is is gruesome, and, and, and that's where I'm going to leave it for now. Now, I do think it's important to sort of realize just how much information Walt was putting out here and how simplified it was and how engaging the delivery turned out to be. This stuff was being presented as not only possible but probable and in most respects eventual. They did such a good job with the program that it caught the attention of President Eisenhower, who quickly realized that even the top experts in the U.S. government and military top brass were dismissing space travel as, quote, Buck Rogers science fiction. They didn't understand the things that he was seeing on a TV show about Disneyland. And I want you to think about that. The president of the United States was watching a television show about a family theme park, and he got more information out of that than he would from his own cabinet. Yeah, that's... That's the kind of job Ward and Walt were doing. And at first, the military, for one reason or another, didn't like the idea of manned space flight. So Eisenhower calls up Walt Disney, and he asks for copies of this show to be sent to the White House. He flew his top generals in and for two weeks screened the Tomorrowland program for them as a, quote, education space primer. Wow, how pissed were they? This is the president Whoa. of the United States showing a television show made for children to literal adults who fought in wars. <laughs> to learn. To learn about space. It's Ooh. like... That's like a, who that's... would then be... be become future astronauts no nope, just to like, just just to to handle they, the because the the military had a rocket program but it was for like explosion like for explosions right, right? and and eisenhower's like look we should really look into this space travel because but, it's all right here and they were like no we don't want to do it and whatever and so he's like no you're gonna sit down and you're gonna friggin' watch these shows until you learn young man, that this is what we should be doing. Yeah, he like pulled the dad card and was yeah. like, no, you're going to sit in this room wow. and when you're done watching this show and you understand, you can come out and we'll go to the moon. Right, exactly, <laughs> but not before. And, you know, it's not that the Disney boys were against any tall tales of aliens and flying saucers. You know, this was very science factual, but they still liked those those stories. And if you remember, Ward was interested in UFOs. He even said that during the planning of the Tomorrowland show that eventually became Man in Space, Ward was thinking about doing more involving UFOs and what man would find beyond the stars. He even set up a segue at the end of the third show, shows a UFO taking flight, you know, the classic flying saucer. And Walt was actually on board with this concept, provided they got, quote, good footage of UFOs. I hate to break it to you guys, but... <laughs> Despite searching high and low, including contacting the U.S. military, this is the pull that they had at this point. Ward Kimball contacts the U.S. military asking for footage on UFOs. Uh, they obviously couldn't find anything usable because you I mean UFOs aren't real, but uh, they, eh. they dropped the idea. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hang on, everybody. It's ears up. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Gee, sorry guys, but that guy bought 14 churros. I'm all sold out. And now, back to the show. So, the first show, Man in Space, aired on March 9th. And then again on June 15th, it was wildly popular. On July 30th, Eisenhower, so this is obviously after the two weeks that he's been showing off this movie, <laughs> uh, Eisenhower announced that the U.S. would be dedicated to launching Earth-circling satellites. After this announcement, a third broadcast of Man in Space was scheduled for September 7th due to the demand that this announcement sparked. So clearly, this is a big, giant foothold for Eisenhower to be like, this is what we're doing, baby. Let's go. I don't care what you're saying. Well, and politically, that's got to make him look good. Like, it's a yeah. popular right. thing It's a popular at the time. thing, for sure. So Eisenhower's... And it's the unknown, and mm-hmm. like... Yeah. It's exciting. It's... Right. Eisenhower's personal response to the first Disney film is open to debate. I mean, we don't know exactly what he said. He was clearly interested in the thing, but whether or not I'm giving him too much credit, that's, again, up for debate. However, Man in Space apparently impressed one high-level Soviet space official. This is indicated by a copy of a September 24th, 1955 letter from Mr. Sedov to uh, Mr. Durant, who is president of the International Astronautical Federation. He says, quote, If the Disney studio supplies us with one copy of this film on whatever terms it may be, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, I thought about doing a Russian accent for this whole thing. It'd be really stupid. Um, if the Disney studio supplies us with one copy of this film on whatever terms it may put, it will make considerably for the cause of promoting our contact. So it's like, hey, give me this film and then we can talk some more. Like this will help you and me talk if this third, you know, whatever. Okay. Um, Eric Burgost, who was a Werner von Braun's biographer, called Sedov, quote, the front man for the Russian space delegations during the Sputnik era meaning the Russians were also looking at Man in Space as more than simply promotional material for Disneyland. They saw it as containing valuable information, actionable information that could help them with their own space goals. Walt declined to send the Russians a copy, however. When Ward asked him why, he replied, quote, Well, they borrowed a print of Snow White back in the late 30s, and we're going to keep it for just two weeks. Ten years later, we got it back all scratched up with Russian titles on it. <laughs> so first of all, petty. Yeah. Second of all... <laughs> Give the man back his movie. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, on December... And don't scratch it. Right. On December 17th, 1954, Chief Soviet rocket scientist Sergei Korolev proposed a developmental plan for an artificial satellite to the Minister of Defense Industry. Korolev forwarded a report by another Russian, who I uh, don't know his name because I can't pronounce it, with an <laughs> overview of similar projects uh, laid out. Uh, That official had emphasized that the launch of an orbital satellite was an inevitable stage in the development of rocket technology. So this is something that uh, they're actively pushing. And I know it predates the Man in Space show, but I think that the show definitely helped the Russians advance their goals for space exploration. They just happened to have a government who saw the value in space, or more accurately, in rocket science, right? Man in Space was the first real spark that ignited the interest of the American public beyond mere child's play. But it wasn't until October 4th, 1957, 
when these fantasies became slightly more real. Now, here's another clip I want to play. I apologize for the poor audio quality, but it's from 1957. What are you going to do? It's slightly annoying, too, but you'll get it. CBS Television presents a special report on Sputnik 1, the Soviet space satellite. Douglas Edwards reporting. Until two days ago, that sound had never been heard on this earth. Suddenly, it has become as much a part of 20th century life as the whir of your vacuum cleaner. It's a report from man's farthest frontier, the radio signal transmitted by the Soviet Sputnik, the first man-made satellite as it passed over New York earlier today. Yeah, the Russians launched Sputnik, and that beeping sound was the actual sound that you could hear from the satellite. Okay. So as it passes overhead, if you have a, a, a radio, you can tune in and hear that sound. Okay. Annoying. But why? Well, I, mean, I get it. It's that. Like, cool. I don't know. Well, it's, look, man, it's 1957, right? Uh, as if to put a fine point on Eisenhower's interest in the Disney TV shows and his push to get his generals at the Pentagon to take space travel seriously, the Russians launched Sputnik, the first artificial Earth satellite capturing the imaginations of millions of people. That beep-beep is the actual sound the satellite transmitted for three weeks and could be heard by anyone with a shortwave radio. Privately, the CIA and President Eisenhower were aware of progress being made by the Soviets on Sputnik from secret spy plane imagery, but they weren't worried about it. In fact, there were reports that Eisenhower was actually pleased that it was the Russians who were the first to step into those muddy waters of the legally confusing world of orbital satellites, opening up the door for the conversation of who actually owns space. So politically, he wasn't like, or, or, you know, more militarily or whatever. He wasn't really concerned about it because he's thinking about, well, I don't want to, I just don't want to get yelled at, right? But he might have been relaxed about Sputnik, but the American public was not shocked by the perceived dominance of the Russians when it came to technology. Uh, after the launch of Sputnik, a poll conducted and published by the University of Michigan showed that 26% of Americans surveyed thought that Russian sciences and engineering were superior to that of the United States which I think is a bold assertion to make and to even admit in like the late 1950s, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, if they can launch a satellite, what else can they do? The launch of Sputnik 1 led to the resurgence of the suffix Nick in the English language. The American writer Herb Kane was inspired to coin the term Beatnik in an article about the Beat Generation in San Francisco Chronicle on April 2nd, 1958. I just thought that was a fun, mm -hmm. uh, because of Sputnik, we get Beatnik now. Oh, So there you go. So anyway, Sputnik's up. All sorts of fear-mongering was whipped up, as you can only imagine. And bam, the space race was born. But it seems like this was really sort of started, at least for the American government, with Ward Kimball's Man in Space show. I think that if Eisenhower wasn't forced to show his generals a television yeah. show made for children about the realities of space travel, America wouldn't have been so caught off guard by the success of Sputnik. Yes, the American government knew of the impending launch, but they misunderstood the American public re public's response to this event, and really ramped up the PR around developing the U.S. space program after Sputnik. Shortly after the launch, NASA was officially formed, along with the... Um, no, it's not NASA. It was ARPA or whatever it was. Anyway, uh, NASA was officially formed um, along with... Um, Eh, I screwed that up. Whatever. Shortly after the launch, NASA was officially formed. Uh, Pre-NASA rockets were viewed as a delivery system for weapons, not for human transport at that time. And Eisenhower wanted to promote a peaceful exploration of space and embraced the idea that the country needed a federal agency to lead non-military research on space as just a matter of human curiosity. 
that's what that's what hmm. that's what NASA's um, you know uh, goal is, right? Yeah. And as the Russians were so so nice with it in terms of how they used Sputnik to sort of rub it in the faces of the <laughs> West, right? So Sputnik, like we talked about, was essentially a polished metal ball that transmitted a radio signal that the Soviets encouraged folks in the West to listen to in any chance they could sort of a thumbing your nose at the government and a pat on the back for <laughs> Russia for their technological advancement. After all, it was Russia who was serious about rocket technology. After World War II and after the U.S. had removed Germany's best and brightest scientists, along with all the rockets they could carry, Stalin wanted someone who could go into Germany and pour over the bits and pieces of Germany's rocket program to glean any information they could and bring it back to Russia. They were way ahead of the game, and maybe that had to do with the talent they had. I mean, Von Braun and crew, for all the damage the V-2 rocket had done to London during the Blitz, had always seen rockets as means of getting man into space, not blowing man up on Earth. <laughs> he would explain to anyone who would listen how man could survive and even thrive in space. So perhaps if he was more weapons-minded, the U.S. would have taken things more seriously. But to Eisenhower, his bombers were able to deliver payloads to any point in the world just fine. So rockets really held no interest to him. To be fair, the Russians were developing rockets more as a weapon than a tool to deliver man into space. But there was some of that explored as well, even before the Man in Space show aired. But once that show did air, it seemed like Russia was suddenly interested in space now more than ever. Which this period in history represents a huge turning point with regards to rocket technology and the two timelines of Russia and the U.S. makes for fascinating reading. So I really do encourage you guys to go and, and, and check that out if this is even remotely interesting to you. Anyway, after Man in Space, Ward continued on with two other shows for Walt. Man in the Moon aired on December 28, 1955 and was narrated by Paul Fries. The budget was higher than Man in Space, totaling $350,000, and used animation to depict a caricatured history of human civilization and its relationship with the moon. Ward included live-action explanations for scientific principles, along with a dramatic portrayal for the future of manned orbit around the moon. Kimball decided to use real people instead of animation, lending a greater believability to the whole thing, and separate space travel from the cartoons and movies to make it seem like a very reachable goal. I mean, if you already have the, the primer, and people now understand because they saw the first one, they can really make that cognitive leap to seeing actual human beings pretending to be on the moon. Uh, the model of the moon that was used in this show was made from rubber impressions of the moon model at the Griffith Park Observatory. Fun fact. The third show was called Mars and Beyond, which aired on December 4th, 1957, with a budget of $450,000. So we're just going up and up. <laughs> yeah. We had Paul Fries narrate again, and again, there were some people in the studio questioning the reality of what they were being asked to produce, hmm. specifically a segment showing the narrow band of temperatures that man needed to survive, claiming it was promoting evolution, as if this was a problem. But, like, it's... What, I don't understand... Uh, I don't understand that, but this was sort of the some of the blowback that they were they were having during <laughs> during production. So we know the Russians were interested in man in space. We know they had these goals earlier than the U.S., and we can only extrapolate here. But I think the man in space show helped the Russians think that we knew more than we were letting on. I mean, if hmm. Walt Disney had this information, what did the U.S. government have, <laughs> right? They had no idea our government wasn't interested in this stuff at all in 1955, and with the launching of Sputnik 1 and 2, and considering we didn't get our first satellite up until 1958, showed a very intense interest in beating us into space, which they did. As I mentioned, within months of Sputnik 2 launching, Congress approved the creation of ARPA, Advanced Research Projects Agency, and then NASA, and things just got rolling 
on and on from there. But it was that little brainchild of Ward Kimball that made everything possible, thanks to Von Braun's relentless grasp he had on the dream of manned spaceflight. If man in space had never been made, would Russia still have launched Sputnik? Sure. Would the U.S. had still sent men to the moon first? I don't think so. It took a film by Walt Disney to make sure the U.S. government stand, uh, stood up and take notice. And if they didn't, the Russians surely would have gotten to the moon first. Disney's ultimate mark on the space race was small but important. Man in Space and subsequent other shows did help the U.S. government see the science factual side that Walt envisioned. And this did help to start things moving within the military. As a result, we weren't caught as flat-footed as we would have been without Walt, Ward, and Werner. On July... First of all, this says on July 201st. (laughs) On July 20th, 1969, Apollo 11 was the fifth crewed mission of NASA's Apollo project, launched by the Saturn V rocket, which was designed by Werner von Braun. It remains the tallest, heaviest, and most powerful rocket ever to be brought into operational status and holds the record for the heaviest payload launched and the largest payload capacity to low Earth orbit. When Apollo 11 landed on the moon, three days after launch, Ward's phone rang. It was Werner. As Ward recalls, quote, When we landed on the moon, he called me and said, Well, Ward, they are following our script. Actually, all his calculations were right on the button, he said. That was Ward remembering that. And with our flag firmly placed on the surface of our only natural satellite, we effectively ended the space race. Again, thanks to Ward, Werner, and Walt. The end. Wow. Very good. That Thank was you. a that was a lot of information. That was a little, yeah, that was a lot of information. A little intense sort of, at times. Yeah. Fascinating. Like I want to, I want to know more. Well, I thought about like going into the other two shows. I'm like, it's just it's already too much. I don't want to do it. But um, it's <laughs> it's very interesting stuff, man. And like, that's the thing is I, you know, there there are two, there are two. Uh, people that had helped me with this project to like research there's really nothing to bridge that gap between what happened when eisenhower got a hold of the show and then how that influenced like he never really talked about it Mm -hmm. so you're just sort of guessing and you look at the timelines and you sort of research the timelines and what happened when and and like how and there was a tight connection with disney and 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 the government and then later nasa like disney was uh was invited to nasa for something or whatever and um, some information I left out was like a, a bunch of the astronauts and stuff were, you know, um, there for the opening of, of uh, Space Mountain. And I think one, excuse me, one former astronaut was hired to um, consult on the construction of Space Mountain as if it's the same thing. Right. <laughs> but totally the same. Yeah. So there is there is a, 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 a not a mentorship, but there is like a yin and yang or, or, or a, a, I don't know familial relationship with Disney and the government when it comes to space, mm-hmm. you know? And, and yeah. I, th- I think it all comes back to this. If, if this program hadn't aired, if Disney wasn't the self promoter that he was, wh- where, where would our imagination be with space? Where would we be in the space race? And a lot of these scientists or uh, astronauts were crediting watching these shows as wanting them to go into space. Some of them were like, yeah, Sputnik launch. And I was like, well, I got to do that. Well, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, Walt Disney at the time with all of these shows, I mean, he he just can put on a show on TV, any show he wants. This is what he's yeah. choosing to do. Yeah. So this is what Americans are going to be excited about. 
Yeah. I mean, it kind of does all go hand in hand. So then if if that's what America's excited about, you know, I'm assuming politicians are kind of always politicians. Your president wants to make the American people happy. I mean, it, it does kind of it all. Yeah, it, it's it's it adds up. It's hard to 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 take that at face value and to look you know, with now in the day of social media and everybody's being outrageous and. You know, it, it almost matters less about how you do your job in politics than how the public perceives you based on your social media account. But I think back in the exactly. 50s, it was a lot less of that, right? And so I think you're right. People did want to, like, they were actually civic-minded for the most part. I mean, I know you can you can pick out examples for, for uh, people being on any side of that. But if you have these kids who see War of the Worlds, and then, you know, two years later, they see a Walt Disney show on TV about how man can get in space. And they've spent the two years prior to that imagining themselves into space. And they see all these, like, you know, Kid Cody, whatever his name was, I forget, like some one of the serials about, like, exploring space and all these space movies, all these B-movies from the 50s. These are teenagers and kids dreaming about that. Mm-hmm. Then suddenly it could happen? Mm-hmm. Oh, mind-blowing emoji. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's it. I'm done. That was great. Yeah. Good job. Thanks, man. And then just I don't know, whatever. The whole thing was fascinating, especially the fact of like nothing was in nothing was planned for Tomorrowland, the Tomorrowland show. He that, had 21 shows to make. That does not surprise me. And not me. one of them. Was, he just kept putting it off. It's like, you know, I think there was like six or seven of Fantasyland because and and another side point, And then I'm going to stop talking. We're going to go um, and we're going to get ready for the secret show. But um the Fantasyland shows and the, the Davy Crockett segments is sort of what launched that Davy Crockett uh, craze of the early 50s and mm-hmm. mid 50s, like the, sco- the coonskin hats and stuff like that. Like, it was that TV show. The TV show was highly influential mm-hmm. in how we perceive a lot of pop culture back then and, and especially translated through to, you know, to now. Yeah. So, there you go. Yeah. Um, I did have something to talk about in the press room, but I just don't want to. In the press room, uh Yeah. Should oh, I do dear. it real fast? Sure. I'm curious. All right, let's do it. Uh-oh. What'd you do? All right, everybody, please, I have a limited amount of time, so please, everyone, if you can calm down, please. Please, thank you. Um, for a few months now, I've been asserting that I have been uh, correct in a certain thing. Um, I have been saying that, uh, you know, since it was announced that Disneyland potentially could open in April, in the spring, before obviously today's announcement that they're opening on the 30th, um, I said that I was correct in this, that I predicted this on the year-end show. Uh, well, uh, I, I, it turns out that I was incorrect. I went back and checked my facts, and uh, apparently I said they wouldn't even open until the end of quarter three. So... <laughs> Not only was I incorrect, but I was I was incorrect by a long, long way. Um, it's I, hell of incorrect. Yeah, I, I apologize. Please, no, 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 no questions, no comments Sorry, from the from the press, please. Um, I was wrong, um, but I don't regret it. Okay, there you go. That's it. It's really gratifying sometimes when you have to go to the press room. I've never been, so <laughs> it's it's really gratifying. You know? <laughs> okay, great. I don't know if it's because, like, you were so convinced in saying that, but, like, I feel like, yeah, you were right, bro. 
Did, like I would, I, totally, I would have gone, I I gone with that it too. Show. Like I listened to everything you said. I gaslit you guys. Same. No, I totally. <laughs> yeah. I was like, no, you guys when, are wrong. I'm he, right. When he sent that text, I was like, oh yeah. He, was, I think I even said Jeremy mm-hmm. was like, no, and I was like, no, he was. I remember it. Yeah. Yeah, and I was like, damn it. Now he's right. I know. I hate when he's dab. right. <laughs> I just dabbed for everybody. Wow. All right, we're gonna get out of here, guys. Um, that's it, Beth. This is like the easiest show you've ever done. It was my favorite show ever. <laughs> um, Actually, no, it was a really good show. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to go live a little bit early for the secret show just to play some pogues because uh, I'm just I'm into it. Um, yeah, and that's that. So uh, come hang out in the secret show. That link is posted in the Patreon page. So go and check that out. And uh, we'll see you guys over there. Thank you a lot. Uh, thank you a lot. I haven't looked at the, the chat room, so I apologize if anyone's talking to me. Um, but I was reading. So what are you going to do? Anyway, um, I'm trying to think if I need to I need to say anything for the shows uh, coming up, and I don't. Um, anyway, just support all of our shows. Follow everybody on social media: uh, the Bantha Milk Podcast, Supreme Resort, Scraping the Vault. Um, you know, in depth. And we should know, have a tiki show. room coming up too. Well, yeah, I think it's next week. I think it's next week. Next yeah. probably Friday. Yeah, Saturday probably. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot for tuning in, and until next time, and hopefully very soon, we'll see you in the parks. Huh? Eh? Yeah. Yeah.